Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome again to season three of What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, your host. As you may know, What I Did Next focuses on people's personal and professional crossroads and looks at those trajectories from key pivot points. My guests are multilingual, multicultural, and they are either from the Middle East or are connected to the region in some way. They're industry leaders, they're curious and passionate about the world around them, and they aim to leave their mark in some way. Today I welcome Clarissa Ward to the show. Clarissa is a multi-award winning journalist and chief international correspondent at CNN. She's been reporting for over 15 years from various countries across the region, including Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran and Yemen. Further afield, Clarissa has also had extensive experience working in Afghanistan and Russia. She is the recipient of several awards for her work in Syria and Iraq, and no doubt more will follow soon for her recent coverage of the Western withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021 and the Ukraine war since March of this year. Clarissa has been able to penetrate societies and cultures in a way few foreigners can. She speaks Arabic and Russian, as well as several other languages, immersing herself in those countries, which has given her an edge that comes across on screen. Clarissa is the author of one of my favorite books of 2020, On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. The book is at times laugh-out-loud funny, but also searingly tragic. She talks about her unconventional childhood and how 9-11 was a clear pivot point in helping her decide to tell stories for a living, to try to bridge the gap in people's different perspectives. I encourage everyone to read this book. You'll find a link in the episode's show notes. We start our conversation today with our first icebreaker question, which is based on the Malcolm Gladwell book, The Tipping Point. You can find more details about the question on our Instagram or Twitter account. I asked Clarissa what personality type from the book she most associates with, a connector, a salesperson, or a maven. I'm definitely not a connector. Um, I mean, I, I do meet a lot of people in my job, but I'm, I, I, and I have friends who are like that, who know everybody and are so good at introducing people. and. I, to be honest, find um, socializing a little bit exhausting and overwhelming uh, often. So um, definitely not a connector. I'd love to think of myself as a maven in the sense that I spend a lot of time trying to learn about things that maybe um, not everybody knows about and um, become a source of information on those topics. But realistically, I would say I'm probably a persuader. Um if I think of what sounds closest to my natural skill set, it is probably being able to get people to listen, 
indulge an idea I might have or a story um, I might want to tell. And I think that I can be good at negotiating too. Um, I know often for my job, I'm having to negotiate access, negotiate um, all sorts of things, get people, persuade people to do interviews with me. So that's probably um, my natural skill set. Yeah. I think most people are actually a combination of, of either one or two of them anyway. So you've probably got your information. Um, two and three. I'm yeah, definitely not three. one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Interesting. My second icebreaker is based on social media. Does Clarissa use Twitter or Instagram more? Clarissa and I have similar tastes and we approach social media in the same way. I have a love-hate relationship with both of them. Um, so I recently like didn't look at Instagram for three weeks and it felt really great. It's like sort of cleansing your brain of all this kind of candy, basically. It's just visual candy and you're just sort of shoving it in your face, but it's not really providing you with much other than a temporary distraction. Um, and similarly, you know, Twitter is a bit more cerebral and intellectual, but it's also, I would say, highly toxic. Um, there's a lot of kind of bang mob shouting at people. And I've had some really unpleasant experiences on Twitter um, with people being very hostile towards me. And then I'll periodically go through phases where I just purge it from my life. But what I found the answer was with Twitter is to turn off like the mentions thing, to turn off the like, so you're not looking at what people are writing about you. Because if you think about it, someone compared it to basically Twitter is the comment section at the bottom of like the web. And, and who reads the comment section? Like no one. And everyone who is in front of the camera, especially knows that like you never read the comment section. Absolutely. It's toxic. It's unhelpful. It's often unkind. It's often personal and um, it, it just doesn't have any real, um, you know, even if it's nice praise, it's like, what do you do with that? What do you, yeah. what do you need that for? Yeah. So I have turned off that function on Twitter so I can no longer see when people are really praising me and I can no longer see when people are really criticizing me. And that has made it a much more um, palatable tool for me to use. Basically, it's just about um, consuming articles that are interesting following intellectuals or commentators who are providing interesting thoughts on different topics and who would you if you if you were going on to twitter today for the first time who would be the five or, or four or five people that you'd pick to follow so i love greg karlstrom from the economist he's their he's um like their Middle, Middle east correspondent he's really funny He's really funny <laughs> he really and he doesn't take himself seriously and he's not like wagging his finger at everyone and shouting at them and schooling them on their ignorance. And so I love him. I find him, uh, I just think he, his analysis is very perceptive and he's also just highly, highly amusing. I love Carl Sharo, who has um, Carl Remarks, which is uh He's a brilliant Lebanese cartoonist and satirist, and his uh, tweets are hilarious and provide some kind of much needed um, uh, relief, I guess. I think that Twitter is such a dark place often that I'm drawn towards people who have a very wry sense of humor. Yeah. Um and then I'm trying to think who else I follow. That it could also be someone like non-related to your work. I mean, it could be just 
anything, you know, you're into cookery or you like art or. Yeah, I, I don't do Twitter so much for that. Twitter for me tends to really just be for work. Um, but there are some really interesting people on Twitter. There's a guy called Jihadi Jew. That's his, uh, <laughs> that is literally his Twitter <laughs> handle. Um, and he is Jewish, but very into like interfaith, um, particularly um, Jewish Islamic interfaith dialogue. And he's kind of funny and irreverent. And uh, so I enjoy reading his stuff a lot. Um, and then I'm just trying to think, I also really enjoy like Bellingcat, um, who I've yeah. actually done some work You've with. You've done a, an investigation with them, yeah. Yes, their investigative stuff is amazing. And a mm. lot of their um, reports are just very interesting yeah. and quirky. Yeah. And because I have such an interest in Russia, I think they're sort of... Uh, must follow as well yeah. for me twitter is always a place where i discover new um new articles that i might not have come across um yes so, yeah, I, me too because yeah. i don't sit and comb through seven thousand websites exactly the main thing it's useful for is um as like an aggregator and then yeah. also it can be useful for me like if i know i have to do live shots on a certain topic and I want to kind of canvas like what people are saying about this issue, like what people think about this. It's a useful tool in that context as well to get a feel for that. I want to just say, first of all, how much I enjoyed your book. Um, Thank you. It was really, uh, it was very raw. It was very honest. It was very funny. Um, it, it For me, it, it rang a lot of bells because um, like you, I'm an only child. Like you, I was at boarding school, but at the age of 12 instead of 10. So it it, it hit a lot of points for me that resonated with me. Um, and, and also one area I absolutely adored was how you spoke about the women in your family. Um, <laughs> your mom and, and especially your grandmother. I mean, she just sounded like an absolute boot. Yeah. So my grandmother was one of these women who really was born into the wrong era. She's brilliant. Uh, classically trained pianist, linguist, spoke four languages, always wanted to be a writer. She wrote, you know, endless novels, plays, books of poetry, all of it unpublished. And as a result, she was um, incredibly dynamic and charismatic and brilliant, but also a very kind of tragic character in some ways because she was crippled by the weight of her own unmet potential and the sort of tinge of resentment, I guess, that comes with knowing you could have done very different things with your life in a different context in a different time. And my grandfather was in the colonial service. They lived in Somaliland and Singapore and my grandfather had an affair and my grandmother allowed it to go on as long as he didn't leave her. And then they all moved to London and they shared this big flat and they erected a fence down the middle of the flat. And my grandfather and his mistress lived on one side and my grandmother lived on the other side and his mistress would cook for my grandmother. I mean, the whole thing was so insane. But in that day and age and at that time, it was very hard. Your grandmother obviously was a big presence in your life. As you've gone through your, you know, the last... I don't know, 20 years or so, do you feel that you've learned things from her on a subconscious level that have helped you along the way that have you, you've used without even realizing it? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. She was always such a big encourager as well of, of, of my passions and my interests. And I was very into theater and she would take me to the theater and um, buy me like theater makeup kits and books and whatever it was that I was passionate about or excited about. She yeah. would always um, really encourage that. She had a video camera, actually when I was young and we used to make videos together and do interviews together. And um, it, one thing that breaks my heart is that she wasn't able to sort of see um, my career take off because obviously she died when I was 23 years old, but she she's a huge part of, of who I am today. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think those sorts of characters, when you have, when you're, you're blessed to have these people at a young age, they really, they really form you in a way that, um, you almost don't, you don't realize it, but as you go through life, you feel, you feel their presence very strongly. Um, let's turn a little bit and think and look at, I know you went to university in the States and then after university, um, when you graduated, it was more or less just before 9-11. I remember that in the book, you talk a lot about 9-11 as a big turning point for you. Yeah. So 9-11 actually happened my senior year at the very beginning of my final year of university. Um, And, you know, I think everybody has these kind of moments in their life that that really change the shape of um, their destiny, in a sense. And 9-11, and I think for many Americans and many people around the world was one of those. It certainly was for me. I had been very sheltered, I would say, up until then and and had traveled a lot and seen a lot of the world, but was not really deeply engaged with some of the geopolitical rumblings that were going on beneath the surface. And when 9-11 happened, I just remember watching the TV and thinking, this is sort of the only thing that matters. This is the only thing that's important is trying to understand how this happened and who was responsible and why they did it and why there's such a lack of communication, um, why people have you know such a view of of the US and why the US has such a view of other people and how they're unable to really uh, efficiently and effectively communicate in a way that would allow them to understand each other better. I became sort of consumed by the idea that this was, a lot of this was about dysfunctional communication or lack of communication, um, a sort of dehumanization of the other. And so it became this, calling for me that I wanted to go to wherever those places were. I was a little vague on the details at that stage and try to better understand how, how this dehumanization, this mutual process of dehumanization had happened. It's interesting that the journey took you to journalism and not in public service, for example, because I compare, for example, someone like Ben Rhodes had the same kind of awakening. Mm. And 9-11 for him was a big deal, but he took the public um, public service route. And But obviously for you, I think um, the idea of talking directly with, with people that were being impacted by American foreign policy and vice versa, maybe that was where the, the interest lied for you, you know, maybe that that in a way that the connection between the two, the interplay between the two. Yeah, I, I, I never was really interested in working for the government. Um, I think in some ways I probably thought that 
maybe the government was part of the problem to a certain extent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So I was more interested in educating myself and having conversations and sometimes like painful, challenging conversations and trying to allow those conversations to take place in a way where people wouldn't just turn their back on them, Yeah, where they'd be willing to engage with them, even though they're really hard conversations to have. I think in a way you're you're quite lucky that you were able to find from such a young age what you were passionate about and that you mm. pursued it very determinedly. That's not something a lot of people uh, are able to do or 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 it hasn't happened for them. Um, are there times now when you find that it's just too much for you um, that you kind of want to just walk away from it all? Or do you still feel that same pull, that same passion that you felt at the beginning? I definitely feel the same pull and the same passion. Um, I really love my job. I always get super excited about it, working on a big story, especially if it's something that I've spent months on, which is which is often the case with the kinds of stories that I do. They take a long time to set up or investigate. Um, I do occasionally feel, though, it's a little bit... Doing this job, it's a little bit like being a doctor with a pager that can go off at any minute. Um, in the sense that like you never really have a time that is like, okay, this is sacred and I'm not gonna take a call. If there's big news, you have to take the call. If there's really big news, you have to get on the plane. Sure. And unless you're literally giving birth or getting married, you're, you, you, you take the call. Mm-hmm. So almost every vacation I've ever had or like a good 70% of them have been cut short or interrupted or, and there's moments where you feel like, Oh, I just really would love to have what other people have with their jobs. Sometimes where it's like Friday at 6 PM, I'm done with that. And I'm not looking at my phone again until Monday morning, but that's not really the way this job works. But I think, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you were, uh, you know, young, free and single, that was certainly much more manageable. But how do you reconcile that now with your fa- your young family? How do you ma- how do you juggle that? Yeah, it's very it's it's really tough. Um, it's a juggling act, exactly, as you say. And you're always dropping some balls. Um, you in my case, make sure that you have like the best uh, child care. And I'm very blessed to work with, you know, two amazing women who help me look after my boys and two might sound like a lot, but when you travel as much as I do, you really need, um, full-time hands-on always there. It's very important for me that my kids have that consistency in their lives and you get used to feeling guilty and this weird roller coaster of emotions whereby, when I leave my kids, I feel sad and I miss them, but I also feel kind of liberated because I get to just focus on like intellectual pursuits. Every woman's dilemma. Exactly. When we come back, we talk about Clarissa's coverage of Syria, which is how I first learned about her reporting. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad and you're listening to What I Did Next with the multi-award-winning journalist Clarissa Ward. You have an amazing ability with languages. Well, I don't know about amazing, but I love languages. And you have a, a, a knack for them and it's it's clearly something you enjoy. Without that ability of languages, I think it would have been hard to do your work. Um, and I'm thinking specifically about your time in the Middle East. I know you lived in Beirut for many years. And uh, I'm, I'd like to talk in more depth about Syria in a minute, but just the language factor, how did that help you? It helped me in the sense that, first of all, like my Arabic is conversational, okay? It's not, but I found that looking like I look, making the effort to learn some Arabic and understand um, part of the language and, and the culture that you learn by learning some of the language as well, it opened a lot of doors. And, and I think that people were maybe not touched, but certainly appreciative of the fact that you, that I had taken the time to, to really try to, to learn the language and that I had such tremendous respect for the language and the culture. And so it, it opened doors definitely, but I also have been in plenty of situations where I've gone into Syria for alone undercover, for example, and I don't have a producer or a translator working with me. So I've had to be able to do basic interviews um, in my sort of derij shami Arabic. Have you found, sorry to cut you off, Teresa, but have you found sometimes that it's been to your advantage to act like you don't speak the language? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're... I've I've had certain situations where I've pretended not to speak the language. Um, the first time I went to Syria after the uprising, I went on a tourism visa and I was posing as like a decorator um, for a couple of days and sort of going around Damascus and like pretending to be buying antiques and stuff. So in that context, I obviously had, it would have looked very odd that I would speak Arabic. So um, yeah, I've just pretended not to, mm -hmm. um, which is also weird in a sense, because you realize you're, you're much more stiff. It's much, you know, you take for granted that you just like the icebreaker that comes with being able to even just like a few phrases. But I do tell people all the time, because a lot of young people, aspiring journalists ask me, oh, what if I don't speak languages? Can I still do this? And I always say like, yes, you don't need to speak languages. Everybody has their, their superpower that they bring to the table. 
for me personally, so much of my work is about building empathy and finding human connections, often in the most unlikely of corners, that the language helps a lot. But it's not the ice, it's not the deal breaker. No, it, it it's adds. not a deal breaker. I know a lot of great journalists who don't speak, you know, a lot of journalists who are much better journalists than I am mm -hmm. who don't mm -hmm. speak other languages. So I want to talk about um, two, two issues. Uh, firstly, um, I want to talk about Syria. Now, uh, for me, um, as uh, somebody who, who watches a lot of news, reads a lot of news, that's how I came across you. So I, I kind of discovered who you were with your Syria coverage. Um, and I, I don't know if for you that was one of your more um, turning points in terms of a career, in terms of your career, was was your Syria work a turning point? Yeah. So the Arab Spring began and I was based in China, in Beijing for ABC News. And because I had lived in Beirut and spent a lot of time in Damascus, um, I immediately just felt like I desperately wanted to be there. And um, I ended up leaving ABC News and moving to CBS I was technically based out of Afghanistan in the beginning and then London, but I just very quickly wanted to be in Syria and went on that first trip undercover as a tourist and embedded with the activists. And I was on my own. So I had to shoot the whole thing on my own. Um, and that was, was sort of my first big report from Syria, which started this like very intense um, love affair, I guess. Um, covering this like extremely painful uh, story of a really beautiful people in the most horrific of circumstances. And it definitely was the moment where I started to get noticed, I guess, in my career and started to win awards. And there was a lot of attention on the kind of reporting that I was doing, which um was gratifying in the sense of seeing a story that I care passionately about get a lot of people paying attention to it, but it was also a little bit tough um, in terms of trying to um, develop as a reporter and develop emotionally given the context that I was working in with so many eyeballs on um, on you that made it challenging. And um, when you were with CNN after that, you joined CNN, was it at that point that you uh, were invited by Samantha Power to the UN to be a witness to events? That was a few years later. Um, so I had been covering Syria probably five years when that happened. And I had been in more than a dozen times and um, um, I was invited to speak at this UN ARIA session in front of the Russian ambassador. And uh, it was a very powerful moment because by then it was already clear that the international community wasn't really gonna do anything about Syria. The Russians had already stepped in and were participating actively in the air assaults uh, on behalf of the Assad regime. And the Syrian people were basically being abandoned and uh, it was cathartic for me to be able to look the international community in the eye, metaphorically speaking, and just say, you failed these people. And when we talk about radicalization 
and militancy and all these issues, it's so unfair to have those conversations outside of the context in which that radicalization was allowed to flourish, which was the absolute abdication of the international community in terms of trying to bring about some kind of uh, peace in Syria, or at least an, an absence of uh, bombardment and bloodshed and massacres and poisoning and gassing and just endless, endless horrors. So it felt good, but it also was a moment where I realized that nothing was going to change. Mm -hmm. You were so vocal in that um, in that session, in that UN session, and you were so um, uh, upset by what mm. you were having to discuss. Do you approach your work, do you try and approach your work from a, an objective point of view, or do you feel that you come to the table always with an opinion or with a with a with a stand? Um, it's it's a hard one because everyone expects journalists to be objective and come to it from a, a you know um, a, a fact based evidence based uh, situation. Mm -hmm. But clearly, when you're in the front line like you are and you see things firsthand, it, it must be very hard to to keep that distance from the subject. Yeah, I think that you know Christian Amanpour talks about the idea of being truthful, not neutral. Because neutrality is complicated too. You're almost, you're drawing false equivalents sometimes. Um, you need to make sure that your reporting is factual, right? You can't make things up. But I do think if you're watching innocent people being slaughtered, you can say that and you can be moved by that and and that's okay it's okay to be a human being and it's okay to have biases because i think we all understand now that this idea of complete neutrality or impartiality it's a myth it's a myth we all have our different um subjective uh approaches that we bring to any given story and i, and I think that's okay as long as we're all grounded in the realm of fact and also as a news organization, you have multiple people covering the same story uh -huh. and you have people covering different sides of that story. So I was, you know, spending a lot of time in Idlib and in Northwest uh, Syria, but we also had a correspondent in Damascus with the regime and he was telling the story of what those people were feeling and how they understood the war. So, um, I think that that's okay. You don't have to be neutral. That's just, it's it's a little bit unrealistic, mm -hmm. I think, to be neutral and particularly to draw some kind of equivalent between what people in Damascus living in regime areas were experiencing and what people living in rebel-held areas were experiencing. Mm -hmm. There is no comparison. Doesn't mean that atrocities weren't carried out by the rebels. Of course they were, mm -hmm. but it just is uh, a question of scale. Yeah. Uh, in the earlier part of your career, you were um, based very much in the countries that you were reporting. So you were in Russia, you were in China, you were in the Middle East out of Beirut. Now you're based out of London and you, you're you the chief uh, international correspondent for CNN and you go to various places when there's a big story to cover. How has that changed your outlook on what you're reporting? How has that changed the nature of your work? 
Uh, I know you're doing a lot more investigative, long, long range pieces now uh, where you're spending longer, you know, months at a time uh, planning them out, like the Bellingate uh, uh, story that you did a, a few months ago. How has that changed and, and how is it how do you enjoy that compared to what you were doing in the earlier phase of your career? I mean, it's a huge responsibility because you kind of need to be across all the big stories happening around the world. But then I'm very blessed to work at CNN where we have this like huge roster of incredibly talented reporters all over the world. So um, it frees me up a little bit to concentrate on two things. One, whatever the breaking news big story is um, that I need to be playing into. And two, whatever the really important big enterprise stories are. So for example, that uh, investigation that you mentioned, looking into who poisoned the uh, Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, or going to Myanmar, um, embedding with the junta to go into Myanmar to look at the aftermath of the coup and what's happening there. And these stories take a really long time to set up and they're very much all consuming. So it's nice to have the, the diversity and the range, um, but it is a responsibility because it means, you know, listen, I can't be an expert on every single place in the world at the same time. Like that's just not realistic mm -hmm. and I don't claim to be, um, but I'm lucky by virtue of having lived in Asia and Russia and the Middle East to have, and obviously the US and, and Europe as well, to have, you know, a sort of a fairly broad picture of some of the themes, if you like, the recurring themes that enables me to, you know, do this job with a mild degree of confidence. What do you see coming next for you? What, what I mean, are you, do you feel that this is gonna be, the next few years are gonna be this similar to what you're doing now or is there something yeah, you're dying to question. do next? that's a good question. Do you have a more, another book in you? Um, I definitely don't feel like I have another book in me now, but ask me in 10 years. Yeah. I feel, I think often there's a weird pressure when you do this job to want to have your own show. So everyone's like, you must want to be an anchor next. And for a long time, I was sort of mulling over why it was that I didn't really want that. I felt like I was supposed to want it, but I just didn't. I mm -hmm. And I would fill in anchor and, you know, I have tremendous respect for that job. It's really tough. It's a totally different muscle you're flexing. It's um, incredibly stimulating. And yet I just found that ritual of having the same show at the same time every day and going into a studio and putting on a dress and makeup and, it's always really cold in those studios. I don't know. I just, it, it didn't really excite me. And then I realized that what excites me, what thrills me still about my job is being in these places and connecting with people and telling their stories. And this idea of finding like commonality and shared humanity through these experiences that transcend boundaries, race, religion, ethnicity, whatever it might be, that was so exciting to me and it still is so exciting to me. And so I want to keep expanding on that and, and also looking at how, how I can dig deeper. Um, 
on the investigative side, particularly, there's so many tools now available with open source information and how can I cultivate better sources and learn more about different places or people. And so I feel very fortunate that I still really love my job and I know it will continue to evolve, Mm -hmm. but I'm not overly preoccupied with trying to have a fixed idea of like, this is what success is. So that's what I'm going for. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm trying to allow it to be a more authentic process. Organic. Yeah. One more quick question. Uh, It's something you mentioned just now that made me think about it is, I guess when you started out, the, the whole concept of fake news and the idea that something might be tampered with wasn't such a big deal. But now I'm sure that this is something that you're having to triple check all the time as you're going along. How has that uh, affected your work? And, and I'm sure it's become a very time-consuming process. Well, you know, I'm really lucky that we have this sort of infrastructure built into CNN to deal with fact checking and standards and practices and legal. And, you know, there's many layers that stories have to go through to meet the standards that that CNN demands. And which is, you know, frankly, a relief because there's a whole uh, process that allows you to not feel sole responsibility for getting absolutely everything right. But I do think in this moment that we do need to get everything right. We are under huge amounts of pressure. We're under assault from endless misinformation and disinformation. I think that's the greatest threat to our societies um, because you get into a place where as a society where people don't believe in the idea of truth anymore, that it exists. And that's a very dangerous place. We need to have these shared ideas of truths Um, even if we understand that we're diverse and have different perspectives, we need to have, we need to all believe that the sky is blue. We need to all believe that, uh, you know, the wall behind irrefutable, irrefutable facts. Yes. Um, because societies that are overwhelmed by misinformation and that stop believing in this idea of truth and fact and fiction are uniquely vulnerable to uh, totalitarianism, authoritarianism. And we've seen that again and again. So the fake news moniker is exhausting and in many ways depressing, but I feel like we have to get on with it and make sure that our work is of the highest quality and continue to, you know, win back people's trust. Clarissa, thank you so much. That was such a treat. Thank you. I've I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening today. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. Please remember to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and now on Twitter for updates on the show. Just search for What I Did Next. You can help our show to grow by leaving us a positive review in your favorite podcast player. Our next episode will be in two weeks' time, and we hope you can join us then.